In this interview, I'm joined by a meditation teacher and author, Daniel Ingram. Daniel sparked great controversy when in 2008 he published his first book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, with the subtitle, An Unusually Hardcore Dharma Book, signing it as the Arahant Daniel Ingram. Naming himself an Arahant, which is one of the highest attainments in Buddhism, flew in the face of cultural taboos against disclosing one's enlightenment. His online forum, the Dharma Overground, is a gathering place for meditators dedicated to a pragmatic approach to the spiritual path. In this fascinating conversation, we delve into Daniel's childhood mystical experiences and how he overcame a lack of meditational talent to embark upon a life of intense retreat and practice. We discuss his meditation challenges and accomplishments and lay out the stages of awakening and how to traverse them. At the end, Daniel turns the tables on me and questions my own experience and motivations. I hope you enjoy this very interesting conversation with Daniel Ingram. Daniel, the second edition of your book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, has a very fascinating and detailed biographical section. It starts with early childhood experiences uh, of meditation states, slipping into deep concentration states, lucid dreams, flying dreams, visualization games, and so on. And then one day uh, you had a dream that, as you write, would totally change my life in profound ways. What happened and why did it have such a profound effect? So that dream wasn't just an ordinary dream. It also turns out it was an insight stage, which we would call the um, arising and passing away or Udiyabhaya Jnana, if you want to get fancy and Pali about it, or the fourth insight stage or whatever, though some people would label it the first insight stage, just so if you're trying to map some sort of Visuddhimagga purists will call it the first insight stage, whatever. It's all, as long as you know what people are talking about, it's fine. And um, so in the dream, I was uh, there on this road, is a dusty gravel road, and I was about three feet high, and I was in a silver spacesuit, like something you'd see out of the 1950s on a fantasy novel or sci-fi novel cover. And uh, there were the two people standing next to me, and we all had ray guns, and we were standing there just staring down this dusty road, and the colors were, of everything were super bright and super washed out, like the sun was incredibly bright, and there were rose bushes that went in a long row down this dusty road. And all of a sudden, there was this cloud of dust, and then from it emerged a large witch with a pointy hat, sort of classic, like, you know, when you think of like Halloween cartoon witch and a black dress. And she was riding on a large uh, black stallion war charger, huge muscular horse and charging towards us. And she took her wand and she went, da, and she pointed it at us. And this blinding white light flashed out of it and we all exploded. And at that point, my, I was a, sort of awake at this point. I, I don't think you could really normally be say I was dreaming, but my body was now fragmented in like sparks exploding all over my room like a fireworks or something. And um, that went on for some number of seconds. And then all of a sudden it all shoo, coalesced back into my body. But my body was like buzzing with incredibly powerful energy. And that powerful buzzing and energy, you know, lasted for some number of minutes. And then I was like shaking and excited and, and something. And it was this powerful, memorable experience. And it turns out that that was what we would call the insight of the arising and passing away. And it's an insight stage that can happen lots of different ways 
can happen in dreams doesn't always, can involve bright lights doesn't always, can involve explosions doesn't always, um, rarely involves witches. Uh, anyway, but I think that's something idiosyncratic. Um, but uh, the point is that it's a stage beyond which people are not the same. It's sort of a point of no return. And at that point, you've kind of formally started the path of insight. And then the problem is that the stages that happen almost mechanically after that are what we would call the dukkanyanas, or knowledges of suffering, which begin with dissolution, which isn't so bad, but progress to stages called things like fear and misery and disgust and desire for deliverance and reobservation, which has a boring sounding name, but is a really um, challenging stage for a lot of people, though not everyone. And I was a young, geeky, not particularly socially well-adjusted teenager. I was like 14 or 15 years old, and I know that by the house I was living in at the time. And uh, that was challenging. I was in suburban North Carolina in 1980-something. Some, this would have been somewhere around 1984 or so. And uh, I didn't know anything about insight meditation or insight stages or what it meant to have your consciousness explode and start the path of insight. And I was just this kid who had been trying to have flying dreams by visualizing uh, things before I fell asleep, just basically visualizing flying. And um, so, uh, and by doing this, I had chanced into the path of insight. And so then my spiritual quest began, even though I didn't know that that was what was going on. You had a lot of other strange experiences like that around that time in your life. It's like spontaneous meditation experiences, absorption states, and so on. And I'm curious, you know, you've, wor you've worked with and talked with thousands of meditators on the Dharma Overground, your forum, and in, in person and so on by email. How common do you think these sorts of childhood experience, experiences are for people who practice meditation? It seems to be something of a trend, but uh, have you observed that? Curiously common. And the longer you talk with people about this and really ask them detailed, open-ended questions and start looking around in their histories, they'll be like, well, actually, yeah, there was this thing that I remember that really stood out. Yeah, there was this. Uh, yeah, I actually could do this thing when I was a kid. I, I did have these visions. I did have these sorts of dreams. I did have energetic experiences. I did kind of sometimes know things. And a lot of people will have those things, and then it kind of fades. This is really common. I, I'm, I don't think I'm anything particularly unusual by having this happen to me. In fact, I know plenty of people it happened to way earlier in life than 14 or 15. And so... Um, the point is that, yeah, it's, I don't think it's that unusual, and I think it's way more common in meditators. There clearly is some sort of predilection or something for the spiritual path that often starts showing up early. Yeah, I think that's true. Although some people have had never had any strange or unusual childhood meditative experiences make great meditators. So, you know, it's, it's not anyway predictive that I, as far as I know, but it'd be an interesting thing to study. Um, I'm thinking of a PhD thesis or something, you know, I'm like, wow, that'd be fun for someone who was willing to live on sandwiches and small amounts of grant money for a long time. <laughs> the, these types of experiences, which uh, persisted in various forms throughout your adolescence and college, uh, saw you attend your first retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in 1994 with Christopher Titmus. Um, but despite those experiences, you found that you didn't seem to have a lot of natural talent for meditation, at least at the beginning. Uh, you write in, in your book, I started out with the same messy, disorganized, attentionally flabby mind that most everyone going on retreats begins with. I was also very committed to changing that. When I started practicing and realizing that even the most basic and seemingly simple instructions were entirely beyond my capabilities, that really rankled my pride. 
it grated against my dearly held vision of myself, that I should be able to follow more than three breaths in a row without being invaded by my neurotic stuff, to say nothing of being able to feel my two feet upon the ground. And what was that first meditation retreat experience like? Uh, it was very difficult. It was very, very challenging. It was extremely frustrating. A lot of pain. I, I, just the mechanics of sitting were really challenging for me. The, you know, and this was not as intense as some stuff I'd do later. It was 45-minute sits, 45-minute walks. And you know, we were starting you know, early, but not super early. So this is just sort of like mid-grade intensity, I'd call it. And it was still unbelievably hard. I remember sitting there for sit after sit, just going, oh my golly, this is nothing but an endurance test of how long I can handle my back and knee pain and neck pain and jaw pain and other strange pains that were showing up. And, and that may have been the only thing that I was capable of is, is just sheer endurance, much less fancy meditative anything. And so, yeah, initially it was just like so hard, but... And, and so as I attempt to assess my meditation abilities, like in terms of just foundational things, I had very little skill. That said, I did cross the arising and passing away again on that retreat um, when I finally started getting some basic mindfulness together. And that's something I had done, um, I think, six times previous to that in daily life. I would just be like dancing and all of a sudden this energy would start hitting in me and all of a sudden I'm in a vortex of energy that's like, you know, rising up with bliss going up my central column or something or, you know, that that just happens sometimes. And so I was this weird mix of, yes, I would have some sort of natural meditation experiences without asking for them or without even knowing what they were. But when I got down to just the basic mechanics of my first retreat, I was as as that is the you know most beginning beginner as far as I can tell, and it, and I had to start from scratch and just learn all the foundational skills, and then work on those. And how did you go about that on that retreat? That you have an interesting uh, account of how you began to learn to feel your feet. Yeah. So even before that account, which I'll get to, but even before that, just figuring out how to sit, I changed posture all the time. I would have to move my legs all the time. Um, I would have to figure out like what, how to have my back, just the basic mechanics of like where to put my balance or how to hold my head and, and my chin. Those were hours and hours and hours of work. Um, and the walking meditation was, it should be so easy to just pay attention to walking. Yeah, I was useless at it. I, five days of that pretty much. Of uh, I, I could barely feel a few steps and I was gone. And then I would be lost in my thinking or frustration or irritation or reacting to people around me or, you know, projecting or making up stories about other people who are practicing around me, how this person looked angry and, oh, I shouldn't be in this room with this angry person or, or wow, that person looks really cool, but they're like super smart and really advanced meditator. I had no idea. I was just totally like neurotic and making stuff up in a new environment that I wasn't used to and didn't know how to handle. Um, so it was even worse than the story that I present in the book. I could have gone on and on about how, how frustrating it was and how not very good a meditator I was. Um, but then finally on about day five, I was like, okay, I am done being unable to feel my feet. And this is something I don't necessarily recommend to anybody. And I'm not a masochist. Uh, in case anybody's asking, is he like a pain freak? No, I definitely am not a pain freak, but I do have a tolerance for pain. And I started walking barefoot on these rough-hewn stone walls that are so common in New England. And they line the front uh, lawn of IMS, which is where I was. And I started walking barefoot on these stone walls. And that was 
a lot of sensation. It was very painful. These stones were sharp and harsh. They weren't flat or anything nice or finished or anything. And finally, I could feel my feet. And it took that kind of extreme stimulation before I was like, okay, I felt that foot. Okay, I felt that foot. I felt that foot. I felt that foot. And I could walk an entire session feeling my feet. This is not necessarily a good idea. Maybe one should build it up a little more slowly, a little more gradually, and not do something so harsh. So uh, this is not a practice instruction or a hip tip of the week or anything. This is just what a, a young 20-something-year-old kid was able to come up with to solve a problem, not necessarily an optimal solution, if that makes sense. And finally, I was able to stay with my feet, and then that sort of, and I was able to start building up some concentration, and then things started to take off from there. And it's like, okay, here we go. I'm actually starting to be able to practice good. And that's a, a theme, I think, that goes through your early practice career is a sort of finding solutions and workarounds to some of these initial blocks. Um, and that began to change. But from there, you went to India and attended another retreat with Christopher Titmus and some other uh, teachers. And it seems you contracted a really rather comprehensive list of illnesses there <laughs> while ver volunteering at various clinics and hospitals. What was that like? Why did you go to India and what was, and what was that like? So I went to India for a few reasons. The first was during that first retreat, uh, Christopher and Sharda uh, said that they would be also doing a retreat in Bodh Gaya, India, um, that uh, January, February area, I guess January. And so um, I was really excited about that because I thought, this is good. Okay, finally, I'm learning important things. I was simultaneously distressed uh, to notice very clearly the state of my mind and my ability to regulate attention and what a mess it was. And that was really frustrating for me. I was like, okay, that's, I can tell that's a fundamental problem. <laughs> this is going to be a problem with this. I could tell this was like a bedrock thing that needed to be solved to help me do some other things I wanted to do, as well as I was very excited about insight practice after that retreat. And the other thing was I was thinking about going to medical school. And right around that same time, a person on the UNC Medical School Admissions Committee, which is the local medical school where I, in the town that I lived, uh, he looked at my application and my resume, and he said, you know, you kind of need something to pull this all together. How about you go immunize Tibetan yak farmers or go relocate Rwandan refugees? Those were actually two suggestions he, he actually said. But, you know, he gave a list of things like that. And he said, because that would really stand out and I think help pull this together. And so those two things, once I heard about the retreat in India, and I knew that there was an unbelievably large need for volunteer stuff in India, and um, the recommendation of this doctor who was trying to help me get into medical school, uh, those two things combined, and I wrote a whole lot of letters to a whole lot of organizations all over Southeast Asia, and finally, I uh, heard back from Mother Teresa's Home for the Dying and Destitute, and it was just a simple one-page handwritten note. And it said, uh, if you want to come and volunteer, there is a need. We can't offer food or shelter or anything like that, but there's always work for people who want to help here. And based on that one piece of paper, I went off to India and did the retreat and then went off to Calcutta and started volunteering there and then moved to a street clinic a few weeks later um, called Calcutta Rescue 
in the northern slums of Calcutta where I would volunteer for the next five months or so. What was it like being in, immersed in such poverty? Presumably that's the first time you'd ever experienced anything like that. Yeah, I'd never seen anything like that. And coming from suburban west, it was shocking. Traumatic, um, scarring, challenging, incredibly educational, heart-opening, damaging. Uh, it was all of those things. It's a cliche thing to say, like everybody who's gone into the Peace Corps or whatever, they say the same thing, but it's still true, right? And so, um, yeah, it was, it was like, whoa, okay. And I was learning stuff about the world that I just didn't know before. And I think that was very good, actually. It, it, it really helped me understand international politics and a lot of discussions about economics and, and social justice and all sorts of things that I just didn't have that kind of understanding of before. So it was a great experience. But I did get a whole lot of diseases, amoebiasis and giardia and hepatitis C and hookworms twice and dengue and, you know... Uh, and I came back um, 130-something pounds, whereas right now uh, you see me at about 170 or so. And um, so for, for those, those who are wondering on the camera, this is what I looked like at 170. Not a whole lot here, right? And uh, you, you can take about 35 pounds off of what I currently am, and that's what India did to me. I'm not sure where it found it, but it did. But it gave me a lot as well. Like India sort of tore me down and then helped build me back up So and gave me gifts and appreciation of humanity and suffering and life that, you know, that's the amazing thing about India. It's great. It's terrible. It's all of those things. It was a um, set of extreme experiences. And this was also the mid-90s. And I was also in some of the more extreme parts of India. So this is not representative of all of India. There are plenty of places that are not like the slums of Calcutta or not like, you know, vill you know mud hut villages five miles walk outside of Bod Bodh Gaya in Bihar during the days of, you know, the height of corruption of Lalu Prasad, right? So those were extreme experiences that are not necessarily representative, but still people who go there have something of that experience and anybody who's been there will know. Have you been to India? No, never. Oh, yeah. So anyway, it's a uh, anyway, people who have been are nodding. Yeah. <laughs> I also think in some ways I, I didn't really think of it this way at the time, but I, I think that there was something karmically good that happened in all that. And I think that I learned a tremendous amount about truth. Number one, suffering. Uh, and that's an important thing to understand. We, we often don't want to understand suffering. We want to do insight practice and we want to be mindful and we want to be peaceful, but we don't want to really get into suffering, right? Who does, right? I didn't. That's not why I was going. I wasn't going, oh, I'll get into suffering. But it is what happened. And that uh, there was a lot of, uh, to use a popular phrase, letting go, right? So you have to, when you're in situations like that, you let go of a lot of control. You let go of all of your dietary things. I was into organic food and, you know, you know, nice fat profiles and, you know, grass fed this and, you know, whatever that. And, and, uh, and there I ate the cheapest street food, uh, you know, whatever was given to me in some of the houses I visited friends, um, it, just whatever was around and available. I had to let go of my sense of health. I had to let go of a lot of strength. Actually, I came back substantially weaker as I lost a lot of muscle mass while I was there. Um, I, and you let go of control when you're, you know, when you're in Indian traffic and some little tuk-tuk, you know, flying you know, down the road between gigantic trucks and 
thinking, okay, I didn't just die. That's great. I didn't just die again. That's great. I didn't just die again. That's really cool. That sort of repetition eventually starts breaking down some sense of cherished something. And I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend highly traumatic experiences like this to anyone. Uh, but they did have, a, I think, an effect on me that when I went back to meditation, it had cleared out a lot of more petty concerns um, because I had gotten used to a lot of real concerns, like whether or not I would die that day. Uh, and so um, I think it helped. I think it helped a lot. And I think it made it easier when I got into the monasteries and they were seemed like such a bastion of calm and reasonableness after the crazy of India, <laughs> the beautiful, you know, carnival-esque crazy that is India. Um, I think when I got to the monasteries, it was like, okay, this is calm and this is peace. And this is also the beautiful side of the technologies that have come out of India. And it was delightful. And I had such incredible appreciation for it. And I think that helped me to practice well. Let's talk about that then. You're, you're writing in your book here, finally the internal pressure took over and I had to go on retreat again. So I went to Malaysia and sat at the Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center with Sayadaw U Ranjinda for two weeks. And that's when, from my point of view, I really learned to practice. And there you learned not only a very powerful style of meditation, which I'd like to ask you about, but you were also exposed to maps, maps of practice and insight. You write about that. That night, at the peak of my frustration, Sayadaw U Rajinda played an old scratchy tape of a Burmese monk describing the stages of insight, and suddenly everything was clear, or at least a lot clearer. I learned from that tape what had happened, knew where I was, and knew what to do about it. That tape changed my life, my practice, my conception of practice. And you go on to, to, to talk about how this monk is describing, well, when you apply a technique, you will go through certain uh, stages. You, you, you mentioned uh, some of them earlier. You go through certain stages, and at the end of a, 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 of a cycle, there's the possibility of achieving a path attainment or a permanent perceptual shift. And you realize that a lot of your idiosyncratic uh, meditation experiences, the things that you were experiencing on the cushion, to your shock, were basically textbook. Um, but perhaps you could talk a bit about the technique you learned there, why it was so much more effective than what you'd learned before, and perhaps also, why do you think you were not exposed to those maps in previous retreats you'd attended? Having gone through all this weird stuff, I mean, I spent three days, like, shaking and sniffing with energy moving up and down my spine and then plunging into weird depths of, like, you know, you know, uh, sort of freeze-frame realities, and then... I'd been able to sit for like four hours and then suddenly I could barely sit for five minutes without wrestling, sorry, restlessness just totally overpowering me and becoming like, and, and finally after I thought I was like this great meditator and I'd finally gotten great posture, I, like I, I couldn't, I was like my mind was suddenly a total wreck and felt like a hive of angry bees that I just had to get away from. This is a stage we call reobservation or desire for deliverance somewhere in there. It's a, it's a very challenging insight stage for some sometimes. And um, that was when he played the tape, and I could see clearly I am at the stage right before a stage called equanimity, to which I don't think I had ever really gotten on retreat. And I was like, okay, this is horrible, but there's a promise if I simply do the technique that I will be okay and get to a stage that is fine. 
that mentality was not one that I had before. And that understanding was not one that I had before. Now, and I personally found it incredibly helpful. And I was like, okay, all I have to do is get to this. And it's not just going to be more and more angry bees. I can get to equanimity if I just pay attention. So I paid attention. And it galvanized some kind of effort. It, it gave me the faith to endure something that just seemed pointlessly painful and hopeless and impossible. Yeah, the problem with the reobservation stage is it throws up all these very difficult mind states. And these can be hopelessness or anger or you know, frustration or projection or all of these things. And, and it, when it throws them up simultaneously, that can be a lot to deal with. And on previous retreats, I had gotten into some dark night stuff. But I hadn't really known, okay, this is how to handle it and this is what to do with it, other than just to pay attention to it, which was a good idea, but it wasn't quite enough. And Mahasi Saito noting, which is a very simple technique, and that was the technique I had learned, which you can find in Practical Insight Meditation. If you're interested in a good book, it's short. It's really to the point. It's incredibly powerful. It's my favorite Dharma book. It's a book by Mahasi Saito. It's widely available and I think freely available now. And the instructions are basically just to make a one-word note of whatever is arising. You know, rising, rising, falling, falling, falling for the abdomen, lifting, moving, placing for the feet. And then frustration, analysis, thinking, wandering mind, wandering, 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 you know, rising, 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 falling, 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 wandering, thinking, or fear, or anger, or frustration, or anger, or frustration, or restlessness, 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 restlessness. And this somehow gave me a little extra something to do and took my linear sort of thinking mind and instead of making it more of a problem, turned it into part of the solution. And that was critical because I have a pretty, you know, thinky mind, uh, sort of a geeky, you know, intellectually kind of guy. And my mind has a lot of activity like everybody's does. But when I suddenly turned that analytical and noting ability into something that could go in and help me stay grounded with what was happening rather than be a distraction, that was incredibly useful. And that, I think, is what made the difference for me. Now, I don't mean to blame any of my previous teachers who were great and incredibly helpful. And I was actually sitting with that same crew on my next retreat when I got stream entry, which we'll talk about if you wish. Um, and they were very helpful and gave good support and created a nice environment and gave me all kinds of important foundational teachings about lots of core Buddhist concepts. And they did all this great stuff. But Christopher and Sharda and are not particularly mappy people. And Norman's a little mappy, but not much. And Fred von Allman was Tibetan-y with different sets of maps entirely. And um, so that's just not the conditioning or training they were coming from, which is fine. I don't mean to you know, blame them like, why didn't they tell me the maps or anything? But it is true that for me, when I got the maps and the maps helped normalize and conceptualize these experiences, like, okay, that's totally normal, that's expected, and here's exactly what to do about it. That was a mentality that suddenly brought on board additional skills and power that I had learned in other settings that I could then utilize for my insight practice. And I found that very helpful. How crucial do you think it is that somebody finds a, an approach that leverages their existing faculties and proclivities? Or is it more a case of uh, one, one ought to come to this technique uh, which is remarkably effective for getting insight and acquire what one doesn't have. Um, I 
while I am a huge fan of Mahasi Saadao noting, as it worked well for me. So everybody's a huge fan of the techniques that worked well for them. That's totally normal, understandable conditioning. Um, that said, I think that the results are more important than the technique. And so, and there are a reasonable number of good, effective techniques and traditions out there, all of which may draw on sort of core components of being present to your experience as it's happening and blah, blah. Um, but some of the differences are important. And it is true that people have totally different uh, skills that they're coming in with, different ways they perceive reality and kind of different ways their minds work and different ways they relate to things. And I think um, nobody seems to play bridge anymore, but I played a lot of bridge when I was a kid. And there's a concept in bridge, or if you've ever played a game called spades, um, nobody plays that anymore either. People play on their phones instead. But um, there's a concept called lead through strength. And leading through strength means if you have some good cards in your hand, but not all the good cards you want, you're likely better off if if you're a no trump, something called no trump and bridge, or if you're playing spades, to lead with your high cards first. If you've got an ace of spades, you want to put that ace of spades down. If you've got the king, put it down. That gives you a better chance chance of remaining in control of the game and then being able to use some of your not-as-good cards later because you can control sort of what suit you're in. And so in that same way, um, with meditation, I would figure out what your strengths are, what you like, figure out a tradition that plays to those strengths, and get some early successes because it's more likely that you will then be excited about the whole process and be able to continue than if you pick a tradition that really doesn't work with you despite the fact that it worked well for someone else and try to grind it out in that tradition. So results are more important than dogma and, and you know, a specific lineage or whatever. Lots of good ways to go these days. And I have plenty of friends who have made progress in all kinds of different traditions and mixing various things sometimes. So uh, that's what I care about most. Can you think of some... Uh, particular entry points that people with certain tendencies or proclivities you've seen them have success with before? Yeah. So if you like the path of effort and you have uh, an analytical mind and you can have a, a bit of a tolerance for things going fast, but being somewhat jarring, I would recommend Mahasi Saidao noting. It's fast. It's powerful. It gets to the point. However, not everybody likes more analytical traditions. Some people uh, do better and not everybody does well in very, in somewhat, I hate to say future oriented because the whole foundation of Vipassana is being present oriented, but traditions that explicitly have maps and goals tend to have people have more of a sort of a futurey component to them. And some people can be thrown by that. So if you're going to be in a sort of a map and stage and state based tradition, it's very important to get a handle on that early or else the analysis and the overthinking it and the striving can become a serious problem. Some other people do very well in sort of more immediate non-mappy traditions like Mahamudra or Dzogchen or um, Zazen, uh, just sitting, those kinds of practices. Shenzhen's do nothing. And um, they find more early success in those. Uh, each of these traditions has their pros and cons. Those traditions tend to lack some of the precision and fine-grained analytical stuff that the more Theravadini techniques often emphasize uh, but they often have a more sort of immediate inclusive component that those techniques eventually build up to, but don't start out with generally. And um, so that's just one of the possible axes that we can think about. And some people just have more spacious, accepting, non-analytical minds. And so when they get in a more spacious, accepting, immediate, non-analytical tradition, that's playing to their strengths. Now, that said, it may be that later on, once they've had some successes in those traditions, 
they might benefit from filling in with the things that get you more technical precision and fine-grained analysis and all of the core strengths of some of the more Theravadini, Mahasi techniques. Um, just in the same way that people start who start with more Mahasi-ish techniques or you know really fine-grained you know effort-based analytical techniques often later on find themselves benefiting from filling in from some of the sort of more broad, inclusive, even-handed, equanimous, immediate, less mappy techniques. So I think both of them are sort of general techniques that can you know augment the other. And then you have totally different things like, you know, the shamatha first uh, people like Paok or Achan Brahm, some of the other Tibetans and Sri Lankans, um, some aspects of Bhante Gunaratana, etc., uh, Ayakema, um, Lee Brasington, the sort of concentration for his people of their own discussion. And some people are just natural concentrators. I was not really. It was very hard for me to concentrate. But once I learned to tear my reality to shreds, I was good at that. Other people concentrate well, and they'll have more initial successes in a concentration-heavy technique, a more shamatha or samadhi-based uh, tradition. And so, um, again, I recommend initial success. Initial success just makes the whole process easier. Just don't get stuck on initial successes. That's really the trick. And so for the people who do concentration first, great. And then they get a concentrated mind. And if they can later turn that to insight in some way that can then deconstruct the concentration platform they've built and see the true nature of all the, you know, the peace and the equanimity or whatever, and see the suffering and impermanence of those things. Cool. And so that can be a good way to go. And other people like me, I think if I'd started in a concentration first tradition would have really struggled. But once I realized I could just tear my reality down and that was what I was trying to do. I, I was good with that. And so again, I think this is a, a thing that requires some experimentation, some consultation with more senior practitioners who have a broad appreciation of the, the options, right? Which not everybody does. A lot of people are just coming from their tradition and they, they know they're one way and that's the way. Okay, cool. I mean, there's something sort of powerful and galvanizing about the one-way traditions that just say, this is the way, this is the best way. And people, if they sort of get motivated by that and get into that, it can really help them. And other people, that's limiting and they really actually kind of needed something else and then they were prevented from getting it. So that's when it's not so good. So each of these things, these strategies have their pros and cons and it's it helps to be able to take a sort of bigger picture balanced view of them and then in an ideal world, you would then tailor something uh, to the practitioner themselves based on what their skills and abilities are. That was a long answer. Was that helpful? Very helpful. Very helpful indeed. And, you know, you, you mentioned a bit earlier in, uh, in your biographical account that your pride, in fact, your, your sense of, uh, of pride about yourself, which you know, at face value... The man off the street might say, well, that's not what meditation is about. That's an impediment to meditation. Actually ended up being really one of those galvanizing forces for you. Yes. So um, if of the seven deadly sins, pride is clearly my um, home, my default sin. Uh, everybody who knows me will say that. It's true. Uh, I admit that freely. I have some arrogant aspects, some prideful aspects, some non-humble aspects. Uh, for whatever reason, that's my conditioning, my karma. I work with it as best I can. And admitting you have a problem is at least the first step of many. And so I admit that I have that problem. That said, pride is not always a terrible thing and can be used skillfully, like all of the energies and qualities. If we can turn the sense of pride into a sense of, no, I have high ideals for myself. I should be able to follow more than three breaths in a row. Uh, that rankles my sense of pride, if you will, uh, or just my sense of what capabilities I should have. Um, 
And if one can use that energy skillfully to have high standards, to have a sense of pride in the skillful sense, like, oh, you know, I, I can be proud of this accomplishment. I can be proud of the work I've done, proud in the good sense rather than sort of the bad sense. Uh, you know, or I can take pride in my work. I can take pride in this meditation session. I can do this well and properly and, and really with sort of dignity and decorum and uh, diligence and, and those sort of things that one can be proud of. And uh, that attitude can be helpful in the same way that one could take uh, lust, for example, the desire for pleasure. And some people can really convert that into powerful jhanic attainments. Okay, cool, valid. Or someone can really take sloth and, you know, uh, or, and turn that into a real broad sense of equanimity. They're not trying to go anywhere. They're just trying to be okay right here, right now. And some of those people, if they can take that sort of, no, I'm just going to sit here and I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to be right here and this is enough and this is okay. And I don't feel driven to go out and find anything else other than this moment. You could take sloth and turn it into something uh, real, really good. And so each, each of the, this is sort of a Vajrayana-ish way to look at the, the seven deadly sins or the five hindrances or the defilements or what the yeah, obscurations, whatever you want to call them. And, and if you recognize that, okay, that's a quality that is being found here in this body-mind now, then is there a skillful way to work with that and to turn it into something positive? And there are skillful ways to do that. And so I had mixed results, let's just say, of, of working with pride and continue to do so. But um, since it is a powerful force in me, I try to use it skillfully when I'm able to, which isn't always. You mentioned the phrase dark night uh, in your description. And that's an insight stage that can have quite a devastating effect. You write, while the old scratchy tape recording of the Burmese monk was very explanatory of the stages on retreat, he didn't talk about what happens when you sail high and then fall back into daily life without landing the path. For me, at least at that time, it was basically a complete disaster. Uh, can you talk a bit about the dark night and what specifically was your experience of it at that time? Yeah, so the dark night or dukanyanas. So by using the term dark night, I'm borrowing from St. John of the Cross, dark night of the soul, and um, then drawing on the work of the likes of Jack Cornfield, etc., that are assuming all of these spiritual challenging phases are basically the same phase. Because you can find a spiritually challenging phase mentioned in lots of traditions, and we're assuming they're all basically this something about uh, core about the way attention develops, that it goes through this high phase of the arising and passing away, and then it goes through a low phase, and then it, the dukanyanas or knowledges of suffering or dark night. And then it gets to an equanimous phase. And then after that is when you get to the first moments of awakening for some. And so uh, the dark night stages begin with dissolution, which is not actually that bad, but it's like, oh my God, in the arising and passing away, I might have awesome posture and I might be able to sit really well and my mind feels so powerful and laser-like and I can have all this energy and I'm really great meditator. And then all, you know, then that stage ends and you're like, yeah, I'm in dissolution. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was meditating, right? Okay, wait, was I meditating? And then your posture starts slumping and the energy starts slumping and you feel out of phase with your things. Like, where'd the breath go? Where's the, wait, hold on, there was the, wait, where's the breath? Wait, why is my mind sort of expansive and kind of sleepy and not very clear and sort of, wait, where'd all the sharpness go? And so that's dissolution. And it, it's not actually unpleasant. It's actually kind of pleasant 
for some, but it can be frustrating. And then we get into the other stuff. So next would be fear, which just involves fear, which can be anything from sort of mild sense of the willies or chills or just kind of something creepy to full abject um, unbridled terror and paranoia and stuff just coming out of nowhere that'll sort of try to rope other you know, issues or whatever into its spin, but it's really an emotion arising and then finding things to fuel itself rather than um, sort of the other way around, which is how we often think of emotions arising. Oh, there's something to be afraid of, and then I become afraid. Whereas this is just fear arising that it figures out things to become afraid of. It's sort of backwards. Not there might not be things to be afraid of. There might be, but it tends to exaggerate those. And then misery, a lot of sort of grieving and loss and sadness, and then um, disgust, which can involve a lot of frustration, with uh, a lot of things, anything really. Uh, oh, golly, these other meditators are not as you know skillful as they should be, and they're loud and messy, and oh, the teacher isn't really saying exactly the right things, and this tradition really isn't quite perfect, and the center doesn't have the best food, and you know uh, my you know partner isn't really as cool and loving as I wish they were, and they don't really understand me as well as I wish they did. And my job, my boss, and my studies, my this, and my childhood, my that, my, you know, my parents, and it, we, all the standard stuff, we can suddenly have an increased ability to perceive the not nice aspects of in a way that sometimes precludes seeing some of the nicer aspects. I'm being polite. And so, and a little euphemistic sometimes. Sometimes it can get way worse than that. And then there's something called uh, desire for deliverance, where being disgusted by all these things, we wish we could get away from them. I've got to leave this retreat. I need to leave my partner or my job or my studies. I need to save up a bunch of money so I can go off to Asia. I need to do this. I need to get out of here. I just, uh, something's wrong. Uh, restless. Uh, and then um, reobservation, which tends to take all of those and add sort of additional harsh primally irritating elements and kind of mix them all together into something toxic. And again, not for everyone. Some people breathe, breathe through these stages and they're just a little bit of irritation and then they're fine. But for other people, for reasons that you could talk, karma or whatever, I don't know. Anyway, for whatever aspects of conditioning, they um, have a harder time with them. And again, it doesn't mean they have to last a long time. It might be an hour of really hard time or 10 minutes of really hard time or three minutes of really hard time or days or weeks or months or who knows. It varies by the person and the situation, but uh, then they can be challenging. And so that was a description of the dark night. And the other question was, what would the disaster look like for me specifically? Yeah, so the problem is I'd gotten up to equanimity on that third retreat, and then I fell back because I didn't land the path, and I fell right back into the dark night, which is common. But unfortunately for me, combined with the traumatic events that had happened in India, combined with whatever insight process sort of maturing into something that really was stripping away my last bits of caring for the world uh, in some way that was very disorienting for me and those around me and that I didn't always react well to. I canceled all my medical school interviews that I had gotten. I went home and sold nearly everything I had to go do a long, uh, uh, long retreat in Asia. I... Um, what else did I do? I was pretty darn irritating to my first wife at the time. Uh, I certainly did some damage to our relationship uh, that I wish I could have avoided. And I was really blindsided by where all the negativity was coming from, and I didn't have a way to conceptualize it or make sense of it or... Uh, 
that didn't have enough frameworks to make, okay, wait a second, you've got to start second guessing yourself on some of this, which is what the frameworks tell you to do. They can, you got to second guess a little bit. Not that that's easy to do. It's not. But you have to go, okay, wait, I just crossed the A&P. I was high as a kite. Now I'm reacting to everything. Okay, wait, maybe this is partially at least insight stage related. And that's the sort of knowledge that I got some months later <clears throat> from some various sources, but the damage was already kind of done. And so then when I went on that last retreat, I really didn't care about anything in the world at all. I didn't care about my health. I didn't care if I broke my mind getting stream entry. I didn't care about job or career or really much of anything. Um, I just cared about doing insight practice and figuring out how to make the suffering stop and to get uh, to uh, stream entry at that point, which now I knew enough of the maps to know that was what I was going for and had some idea of how to do that. And I think it gotten very, very close to it on my previous retreat and could now recognize that. And so that all combined to produce a very, very powerful retreat in which I really had no hindrances. I just practiced from the moment I basically hit the door, uh, which was very freeing. It made for an incredibly powerful fast retreat. And I just tore through the stages of insight and they were horrible and I didn't care. And that was 1996 in Bodhgaya. Yeah. You mentioned about that. I had largely stopped doing anything that could really be called practice. So this is on day six of this retreat, which was your fourth retreat. Uh, every, everything seemed just right on its own without my doing anything. Instead, there was this little vivid fantasy-like daydream that showed up as I just sat there doing basically nothing. In it, I was imagining that there was this gerbil on a gerbil wheel and that this gerbil was both a meditator trying to get somewhere, and yet also God. And yet God was watching the gerbil that was God. Suddenly the gerbil God and the big God, who just happened to be what seemed to be subject, looked at each other. They recognized in this instant they were the same thing, or that their awareness was the same. And in that moment, the observing side collapsed totally into the eyes of the little God gerbil, specifically the no-self door, which you probably guessed, this is in brackets, Everything vanished, everything reappeared, and then the aftershocks following stream entry started coming. So you've mentioned stream entry before, and that's the first of those four levels of perceptual shifts, or stages of awakening, from the Buddhist Pali Canon. And could you talk a bit about what it's like to go through one of those shifts, uh, and what are these aftershocks? Yeah, so stream entry varies a lot depending on the person in terms of exactly what they experience after it. For some, there's not a lot of aftershocks. For some, it's just like a synchronizing and blipping out of attention and then everything comes back. And there's a sense of mental reset. And they don't actually feel that different, um, although uh, most people do, but there's a range. Uh, this is a stage that's easy to confuse for two previous insight stages. For anybody who's attempting to map this, that's a very, very strong warning. Um, the vast majority of people who think they've gotten stream entry just crossed the arising and passing away or got to some interesting thing happening in equanimity or some momentary formless realm or something else. And instead, it wasn't stream entry. So, But of those who actually have gotten stream entry, uh, there's a range of how people describe it. So the things you can count on are they will now naturally cycle. They can call up something sort of arising and passing away like, but a mild version, just at a whim, just by inclining the mind to contemplate anything. They sit down in the arising and passing away, can rapidly drop down into dissolution, out into fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, and 
Many, once they've gotten a sense of how to uh, use these capabilities, can then relatively quickly get to equanimity, and most will then learn how to get repeat fruition. So that, that cessation or fruition that happened there through what we call the three doors was um, where reality totally converges, converges um, with an appreciation of either impermanence, suffering, or no self, or really a combination of those. Um, so everything will either da -da -da, strobe, disappear, reappear, that's impermanence door, or... Um, collapse in, where uh, subject and object collapse into each other totally, recognizing their essential nature. That's the no-self door. Or ugh, the entirety of reality, body, mind, space, everything will be ripped away from the sense of observer. And that's the suffering door. And these have some variants. You can read about them in the book. But the, the basic point is um, that once this has happened, it, it changes something about the brain. A stream enterer has different physiology, attentional physiology, insight physiology. Uh, they're not the same. And people will react to this differently. Some people will say things like, I now have this kind of permanent, like few millimeters of space around my thoughts that just is always there. Some people report radical reductions in anxiety. I know someone who's um, had a phobia disappear as a result of stream entry. Um, I don't know why. Uh, but not everybody reports that. Um, uh, some people have profound insights, and suddenly their ability to comprehend all kinds of Dharma teachings is, is incredible. And they're like, oh my God, like this sutra and this thing and this thing. And just like they have days of like the integration phase. Oh my God, like, and that's what they were talking about with this. And see, then is like that. And then Dzogchen's like this. Uh, and, and Vedanta's looking at it this way. But like, and, but you know, unfortunately, some people who cross the arising and passing away will also have some of that because people who cross the arising and passing away can have powerful philosophical abilities as well to synthesize across teachings and stuff. So again, not diagnostic. Um, and so there's this range and diagnosing stream entry is a complicated business and really requires a lot of skill and is easy to get wrong even for insight teachers that's a whole another controversial topic that could be a whole podcast actually um, but uh, it does something different and now one is in the stream what one can guarantee is now insight stages are just going to be rolling through and happening and progress of some sort is basically inevitable unless you get serious brain damage or death before you know, that happens. And so assuming an intact functioning, you know, body-mind system, uh, the stages of insight are now going to start rolling through and, and they're just going to be happening in a way that they were not before. It, it radically ups the pace, the ante. And now, like, you know, it's not too long before you're going to have a sense of review and mastery of this phase. And before you know it, the next stages of second path are going to start showing up depending on how one's practicing and things. And then, you know, more insight stages towards second path. And, and now you're like, you're in this, like, if there's an event horizon and like past that event horizon, there's no getting out of the whirlpool. Now you're in, or the black hole spiral, you know, you're in it. You're going there. It's sort of just a matter of time. And so that's a nice thing to be able to attain. But again, tricky to diagnose, so be careful. A lot of people call me and they're like, oh my God, I attained stream entry on this retreat. No, it's just the A&P or equanimity. That's actually a very common um, thing that I deal with in my day-to-day -day talking with people about meditation. You know, this, this idea of talking about attainments, culturally, broadly speaking, is or has been quite taboo. You stirred up quite a bit of controversy when you published your book, Mastering the core teachings of the Buddha, the first edition, by assigning it the Arhat, Daniel Ingram, which is the highest of those four levels and said to be very rare and uh, one's not supposed to talk about those things and that sort of stuff. And your approach is very pragmatic. Apply the technique, go through the stages of insight, uh, achieve the perceptual shift or the path attainment. Why do you think disclosure of attainments is so important? 
So when I look back at the polycanon, uh, you know, not that everybody thinks everything in the polycanon is authentic, but there's an overwhelming trend for people to discuss attainments in the polycanon. And while you can find in the code of conduct for monks or, you know, Vinaya or Vinaya, however people want to pronounce it, uh, that it says that monks should not uh, discuss this with non-monks, basically, and that you should never falsely claim an attainment. Those are considered big no-nos. That said, the Buddha was forever calling people out and saying, this person had stream entry, this person had you know, anagami, this was an arhat, this person has powers, this person has a skill to concentration, and he would forever, you know, was constantly talking about himself, I am, you know, the Tathagata, knower of worlds, tamer of gods and humans, you know, arahat, you know, with full mastery of the powers and knowledge of lives, and on and on and on. It's a, it's a long list, right? And this is a, a frequent occurrence. And there's, and then if you look later on, you know, the, the first uh, great Buddhist conference where they solidified a bunch of teachings and texts was specifically, you know, attended by this many arhats who were all known to be arhats and claimed arhatship. And the, the Pali Canon was supposed to have been written by a whole bunch of arhats. And at the time they would say, oh, you know, this person's an arhat, that part's a, person's a whatever. You want to go learn this, you should study with them. This person's a stream entry, you can study this with them, blah, blah. And that was all very straightforward and functional. And you got the sense it was more... It was much more of like a guild or like a craft, a trade, like not a trade that's so minimizing of something so much more profound, but it had some of that functional quality to it, like a guild would have, right? That there are journey, journeyman craftsmen and there are itinerant, you know, intermediate, you know, uh, apprentice craftsmen and there are, you know, master craftsmen. And it had that same feel as far as I can tell. And then you find these stages, again, talked about in the commentaries. And then you find things like, uh, the Vimudi Maga, which uh, preceded the Visuddhi Maga, which is the famous manual of um, Buddhist meditation practice in the Theravadan lineage, uh, you know, being signed the Arhat Upatisa. And you find, I think, was it the Burmese? Some scholar's going to correct me probably, but the, one of the copies of the, the Visuddhi Maga signed by the Anagami Buddhaghosa. And they were explicit about these things. This is my qualification to write this thing. And I had plenty of teachers who, while not using the explicit word arhat, would sometimes even use the word and just say, don't use it. Or they would do things like, you know, say the criteria for their attainment, which was the criteria for arhatship. And, um, and there were quite a number of those teachers, Thai Forest, uh, um, Burmese, some others, and they would specifically say things that directly let you know they had various attainments. They just wouldn't use those words. And I'm like, oh, why? It's sort of like the whole Voldemort thing. Oh, shh, we don't say his name. Yeah, but, the, you know, everybody knows who you're talking about to say Voldemort. Like, come on. In the same way, like, come on. You know, just if you're saying Arhat by every word except using the word Arhat or Anagami or whatever. And one of my teachers was talking about how they really liked attaining Naroda Samapati. Well, you're explicitly, you're at least an anagami, if not an arhat, if you're, if you're attaining that. That's, and so, like, that's a, that's a claim to an attainment, a, a direct one. And, and so this taboo is, it's, it's not really what we think it is. And functionally, we see all the time in, in Thai countries, oh, this person was an arhat, or this person has this attainment. Or even Mahasi Saidao, practical insight meditation, is signed, you know, Aha Maga Pandita. That means 
seriously scholastic arhat master meditator person. That's what it means, right? It's, it's a specific label that means all that. And it just doesn't happen to be the word arhat, but it, it is, it's, a, it's that claim. And I had numerous teachers claim to me their status. And I found that incredibly helpful. I was like, oh, good. I'm studying with a real person who can really tell me how to do this. And they know what they're talking about. And they're comfortable talking about it. Um, I just find that incredibly empowering and straightforward and non-neurotic. I find all the sort of weird kind of linguistic, you know, backroom talk, gamey hints and stuff like, come on, like, just talk about the thing that this is all about. This is what we're, we're doing here. And let's just say we've done it and do it and figure out how to tell other people how to do it. Uh, I don't like all the games. And so uh, that's the take I took on it. I'm sort of a pragmatic um, semi-iconoclastic, but in some ways very traditional Westerner. And I think it's actually restoring something that I think was original in traditional Buddhism and that you even see in lots of other traditions, right? I mean, they explicitly say who the patriarchs of Zen are, and that means they have very specific attainments and realizations. They explicitly tell stories about them that very specifically say these are the attainments and realizations they had. They're, this is unambiguous. In the Tibetan tradition, there are certain hats and certain titles and certain things you just don't get if you're not realized, right? And they will say, this person is a realizer. This person is a, you know, whatever labels they want to put on it. And they, and they do that too. And so the notion that this was somehow like not happening and I'm some like far outlier, it's just not true. It's, it's one small step that people kind of freaked out about. Okay, fine. But really, anyway, let's grow up a little bit. Yes, that pragmatic directness that you that characterizes your way of working and your approach. I appreciate it very much. Um, you don't like to play games, but let's play a game. I don't like that game anyway. Some games I like, but not that one. Yes, indeed. How about a rapid-fire practice guide? This We're coming to the end here of, of what I'd, I'd like to ask you about. You know, I think by now some people will be saying, wow, this is, this is fantastic. How, how do I do this? And, and given that there's variations for the entry points for different people, um, for, for, the sake of, for the sake of the game... Uh, if I was to ask you four questions, how would you answer them? So I come to you and I say, I want to attain stream entry. What do I do? Okay, so that's a question I get a lot. And then I always come back and say, what are your resources? What are your, in terms of time? Um, what's your mental health like? Uh, what's your, what are your resources in terms of basic psychological foundation of morality, of concentration? What have you got? Have you got time? What kind of time can you travel? How is your physical health? Uh, what kind of, how much money do you have? It's, it's a terrible question, but like, you know, to, take, to be able to take time off or to go study with some good teachers, not necessarily always required, but sometimes helpful. And so I actually then do a whole assessment and ask a whole lot of questions, functional, logistical, practical questions, as well as kind of what do you like? What's your style? Uh, what have you found helpful before? What are you, what's your background coming to this? It, it triggers this whole conversation. And there's a whole lot that I need to then know to be able to really begin to come up with a, a practical answer. I mean, it's usually an hour or two conversation, if that makes sense. And so you kind of need to know all those things. And I, I get a reasonable number of that. Well, I have 2.3 kids and 1.5 jobs and, and, you know, I have a mortgage and I have a partner and I, I have, you know, 30 minutes a day I can dedicate to this. How do I get stream entry? And then the answer is very straightforwardly, you're going to have to do exquisite daily mindfulness of the moment to moment experience of everything that doesn't require conversation or high level processing. Right. And that's the answer. And then, uh, so, and then I can, I'm, 
I'm summarizing what really should be a more nuanced conversation. And then some people, it's like, you know, I've got a local Goenka center and that's, I can do 10 days and that's all I can get to and that's all I can afford. And then I say, great, that's a good place to start. Go, go do a Goenka thing. Just have a little bit of map stuff to augment it and don't do some other technique. When you go there, that's disrespectful. If you go to their center, do their technique and play their game. Um, and then, you know, f- just watch for the fact that you'll likely cross the A&P during the retreat and get into the dark night, and then you have to be able to handle that. But, you know, something people can learn to handle in daily life. It just takes a lot of mindfulness. And then some people are like, no, I, c- I got three months. I can go off to Nepal or Burma or whatever, or MBMC. And then I'd say, okay, great. Uh, then um, think about going off and studying, you know, with some of the Mahasi uh, lineage people, if you really just want to like balls to the wallet and you've got great mental health and you've got the time and, and you don't mind, um, following instructions and doing your best to not be an arrogant, you know, uh, meditator who's going to use all this terminology. It's just going to drive them crazy. I have a whole series of advice then about how to go to these places skillfully that I would give them. Um, and you know, so that's kind of the range and but everybody's different and other people are like no i really like the tibetan tradition and i'm like okay here are the people you should study with and i really like zogchen oh okay i've got some zogchen friends you should study with or mahamudra okay there's some people i think you should study with here's some stuff you should read it kind of depends right and everybody's different or oh, actually i have this real vedanta thing i really like vedanta okay well here's some vedanta resources you might find helpful you know or, oh zen like oh i really want to do this in zen i'm not as versed as exactly who to study with but i can point you to some of the better resources and help them tweak some of the zen techniques to to make them a little more something. And so that's kind of the, a really summary answer that unfortunately could be unpacked for a long time, but I'm going to stop there because you said you had four rapid questions. That's all right. Yes. It's sort of rapid fire summaries here. Um, okay. Next question. I have attained first path and I want to attain second path. What should I do? So 98% of people who come to me saying they've attained to first path haven't. So I'm going to go through a very long conversation uh, uh, that most people find kind of challenging about the microphysiology of exactly why they're making that diagnosis. And the vast majority of the time, I'm going to come to the conclusion that they are wrong. I never diagnose uh, stream entry by email or over the phone. The only thing that's likely to make me do anything that crazy is if I see it unfold with me on retreat, which is very rare as I almost never do retreats that other people are going to go on in that kind of way. Um, and so that's, but let's say just for the sake of argument that for some strange reason, someone did have stream entry and they were able to convince me of that. Okay. Uh, that's, that's a very hypothetical universe we're living in, but it does uh, rarely occur. And so were it to rarely occur, um, it's going to be more of the same. So, uh, first, the first, the thing that helps most to get stream entry, weirdly enough, is to really nail the review phase. If someone really gets a sense of the review phase, how to walk through the stages of insight well, then when they get to do it the next time at just a slightly deeper level of closeness and a slightly higher level of sort of fractal and emotional complexity, which is what second path tends to be, again, these are averages um, and generalizations, it's a much longer topic, then the the first piece of advice is always nail down review. So that means learn how to walk through the stages of insight, spend more time in them, learn how to call them up, um, intentionally, learn how to call them up out of order, go from reobservation to the A and P up to misery and back down to fear and spend five minutes in each one or something. Uh, learn exactly what their, the shapes of attention look like as you go through them. Learn how to get uh, reliably to equanimity in, in a sit, um, you know, in an hour sit, get to equanimity every single time. See if you can do that. 
okay? See if you can get fruition at the end of every hour set. That would be even better. If you can get fruition reliably with, you know, good, you know, three-door phenomenology, which I'm extraordinarily strict about, um, then see if you can get repeats. See if you can get, you know, go um, get a fruition and then loop back and in a minute or two get another one. See if you can do that a few times. Some people can learn to do that. For a few rare people, see if you can get duration. See if you can get into a fruition and then have reality disappear and then reappear some substantial period of time longer. It's hard to do. A few people can do it. Usually it takes retreats, not everybody. Um, anyway, so these are interesting things to try for and to see what your capabilities are. Watch carefully when the mind comes out of fruition exactly how the sense of duality restarts. There's actually a lot of clues that take place in that like quarter second if someone's got a really sharp mind and making resolutions to get a mind that sharp that can see, okay, this is how the sense of duality reconstructs itself. We'll actually give you serious clues that help later, way later actually. Um, and so, or, you know, learn to get fruitions in daily life when just walking around. And when someone's getting multiple fruitions in daily life, when just walking around happening spontaneously, that's the kind of situation, you know, we're able to get them very reliably on the cushion with, with a good sense of setup and, and sending the mind in that direction and letting that happen. Uh, that's the kind of thing that makes the next stages of insight vastly more likely to just start arising spontaneously. Um, and it's just some part of the physiology. And so if one's nailed review, then it's really a question of when you cross the next A and P, recognize that. Recognize that once you've crossed the next A and P, it's going to be much harder to get fruitions. And then you kind of have a choice. When the dark night arises, can you handle it? Or do you feel yourself wanting to kind of bail out and, and go back? And if you can um, sort of stay with the dark stuff and, and go forward and get to equanimity, cool. And not everybody can. And some people are like, nope, this is driving me crazy. I, I can't handle this next layer yet. Make some resolutions to go back and remaster review practice and get some fruitions again and sort of regroup. Okay, cool. And so there, that kind of strategy will work for a while. At some point, there's no choice. The, the next path will start taking over. And you just have to be with what's going on. And all the strategy goes out the window. And you just have to ride that wave. And once someone learns to do that, they can hopefully, if they figured out how you get fruitions and how you go through the stages of insight, well, we'll just do that at, at that somewhat greater level of depth and emotional complexity that second path is. Um, so that's my general advice. There are more specific tweaks based on like if I, in careful conversations with someone about like which factors are strongest and what kind of approach they're taking to practice, I find imbalances of like the seven factors of awakening. I would do my best to address those and sort of, you know, start, yeah, the, the Mahamudra Zogchen versus Vipassana conversation is going to start coming in there at some point, um, that kind of approach conversation. Anyway, so that's some of the, as well as, you know, some people, it's really beneficial to learn some shamatha skills after stream entry, really nail down the jhanas, at least at like the fourth jhana, you know, and get it pretty strong at least. That somehow helps and does something. And if someone really gets reviewed going well, learn the formless realms. Why not? They're really cool and interesting. And if you know them well, it helps you differentiate some of the, the tricks or uh, mimics that can pretend to be um, fruition or something else. It makes you a better phenomenologist, aside from the fact they just do something cool to the brain and the skills you learn by pursuing them are really good. So that's, that's sort of the range of conversations. But again, those are long conversations. That might be an hour or two, and I think I did that in less than 10 minutes. 
Yes, I think less than five actually. So that's that's just really rapid fire. Yeah, and if this if this is is really getting you know really gripping people, it's in a lot of this material is in great detail laid out in Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which you can buy on Amazon or it's also available free. And we'll talk about about that at the end. Um, so, but nonetheless, I think this uh, rapid fire summary you're doing it's it's just so useful and fascinating. So okay, I have attained second path. I want to attain third. What do I do? Okay, same set of assumptions as before. If they really actually do have second path rather than just cross the arising and passing away twice or whatever they did and don't even have first, if they actually have second path and somehow they convince me of that, which again is unusual, then, then we have a different conversation. Okay, the first starts out the same. Master review practice. That is always the key thing to do. Get really good at it, really good at navigating the stages. And they may be more complicated. So if someone's really a technical analytical person, which is the kind of people who tend to contact me, I will have them really sort of look at sub-jnanas and sub-jnanas and sub-sub-jnanas and all that kind of stuff. Because that's the kind of thing second, pe- second path people tend to be able to nail well. And that kind of fine-grained precision of really differentiating subtleties of mind helps when you're trying to do the higher paths. To really, you know, all of the little sub-phases of equanimity, all the little sub-phases of dissolution, the cross correlations of like how dissolution is kind of like the third jhana and you can move from the third pasana jhana to the third shamana jhana and little subparts and all there. That kind of fine grained work I think actually helps a lot. And so if someone wants to become a, a very, a sort of a super taster of the meditative world and really work for second path for what it's good for and to get the cool benefits out of it and really kind of get that horizontal development that makes it a really strong foundation for going forward uh, to the third path, I think that's a great idea. The next thing is at this point, I, I'm going to highly encourage learning shamatha jhanas and formless realms. Highly. Uh, and particularly the um, uh, the sixth, uh, sixth and seventh uh, jhanas, although the eighth one is really useful. So we're talking boundless consciousness, uh, nothingness, and neither perception nor yet non-perception. I think someone should nail those. Now, not everybody is good at this. Not everybody's going to have an easy time with this. But the attempt to get something, some competence and skill with those is very useful for third path. And this is even stock and standard Mahasi. Uh, and stock and standard poly canon. You should, if you have your concentration trip really together, or at least moderately well together, it makes third path a lot easier. Then there's the the conversation about luminosity and panoramicity. So something wide open, immediate, and shifting the focus from sort of ultimate reality being fruition and the goal of practice being to get through the stages of insight and get a fruition and get the afterglow of that and that nice mental reset, sort of get your hit, as we might call it. uh, the conversation turns to immediacy, that somehow every moment walking around in some panoramic way has to be seen as it. And yes, you can still walk through the stages of insight. And yes, there's still, okay, once you've mastered review, going through mind and body and cause and effect and three characteristics in the A and P and navigating the dark night and getting to equanimity and then getting the fruition of third path rather than regressing and getting the fruition of second and all those sort of middle path conversations, which get really complicated um, and hard to sort out. That said, something about luminosity and spaciousness and Dzogchen and Mahamudra and that this is it. Even like true self Vedanta stuff can be really sort of useful here. Oh no, some Theravada needle listening to this just freaked out. Sorry. But it's, it's a disposable foundation for what comes later. And um, the sort of luminous ground of being stuff, which again, uh, such a problem and such a trap and such a golden chain eventually, is an important conversation to have because that has something to do with what people can be dealing with at third path and why that's simultaneously an interesting perspective to investigate and why ultimately a trap. But to know, to know it at all, 
um, and understand that trap and maybe fall into that trap and see what it's like to fall into that trap. That's an important part of the third path conversation. And so this really has to be a most of the time walking around thing, right? That the vast majority of space and what is in it and this whole body-mind structure are naturally showing themselves as they are where they are. That's the setup for our hotship. And so that's the third path conversation. And third path can be a long, complicated thing. And so those, the middle paths mapping there is murky and the conversations get complicated and really sort of, again, involve like a, a really fine grained analysis of what are your strong factors? What are your weak factors? How's your analytical stuff? How's your concentration? How's your morality? How's your integration? And the other problem is third path is almost in some ways kind of the dark night of the spiritual, like of the big arc of the paths, um, because it starts hitting really close to home, right? So you're, this involves a substantial amount of sort of subject illusion deconstruction. And that can bring up some emotional resistance at a deeper existential level than the first two paths generally do. Not for, not for everybody. Some people, third path is easy. I don't know why. Um, but each, any of the paths can be easier or harder. So, but the general trend is for third path to be more complicated. So that, again, that's a short summary of what tends to be very long conversations. The fourth question. I've attained third path. Honest. And I want to attain fourth. What should I do? Okay, if someone actually somehow convinces me that they have third path, again, that's a profoundly um, questionable assumption and a somewhat rare event, uh, then, then first of all, there has to be a, a, a ruthless um, investigation of what the golden chains are. So what does one like? Does one like that sense of transcendent spaciousness that third path can give? Does one really subtly want there to be a luminous super space that is a luminous ground of being? Does one really kind of like the sort of formlessy, formless realm, escapey thing? Does one really like the sense of a continuous identity that has a path or that has attainments or that is a meditator, you know, that is an achiever, that is a striver, that is a doer, that is an owner? That's the, the super deep stuff. Because to get to our hot ship, you have to have a radical honesty about those things and you have to figure out how to deconstruct them at a basic sensate level. Well, there are lots of ways to play the game and people wake up based on all kinds of causes and conditions. And I, that's, a, that's a very long conversation. But, but if one is coming to me and sort of jumping into my world, this is how I would approach it. Not that that's necessarily the best way for anyone. Um, I'm going to talk a lot about sort of what, what is one doing in one's own practice now? What happens when one sits down? Where do the last holdouts seem to be? What do they seem to be like? What issues are you dealing with? Um, and are you investigating those well? It, it, this is subtle stuff. This is hard stuff. And figuring out what the last little fractions of do, you know, delusions in some subtle layer of the last core processes that you know, imply being or doing or knowing or controlling or wanting or having or any of that, that's some subtle stuff. And there can be a lot of cycles and cycles and cycles to this. So first off is normalizing cycles. There might be many levels of depth to this where you think you've got it, and then weeks or months later you think, nope, I don't have this. That was what happened to me. It's not actually what happens to a lot of people. So normalizing that process. As Bill Hamilton said, the Arhat fractal is vast, meaning it has all these subtle layers. So the, the notion that you're just going to do this in four paths yeah, throw that out the window and just roll with whatever cycles and layers present themselves and how many layers it will be and how many cycles it will be. I don't know. Varies by the person. It could be few or it can be very many. Um, be very careful with time horizons. Like, oh, I want to get our hot ship by next Tuesday. Oh, God. 
uh, it's not that there isn't something beautiful about that kind of powerful motivation. I, I can understand it, and sometimes it can help and even work. Uh, but you've got to be really careful about that because there's a whole lot of dynamic uh, that has to do with identification there at some meditator, achiever, doer. Um, one has to get over the whole past and future thing. That's another complicated conversation. Really deconstruct how you create the sense of past and future and be aware anytime the sensations of past and future are arising. Uh, there's more stuff about luminosity and its completeness. There's more conversations about Dzogchen and Mahamudra and Zazen and just sitting and Dogen's practice enlightenment being the same thing, that each sensation of effort, each sensation of striving has to be seen immediately as just more empty stuff. Those and again, this varies by the practitioner. So the, the long, deep conversations where you get to know somebody, how they work, where they're tripping up, and and hopefully they're not playing to any shadow sides that you have where you're not as good at seeing those things, and sometimes referring them elsewhere. Like, and actually, you, sh you should just go study with this other person. Go on retreat with, you know, Saida Upandita Jr., or go on retreat with whoever. They're better for this. You know, I think they would be a better fit for un un helping you unpack some of those last things. I refer a lot of people out, actually, at all levels. Um, you know, and try to get someone who, because I'm not necessarily the best fit for plenty of people, despite whatever knowledge I have. That doesn't mean that I'm a good teacher for someone. And so uh, th those are some of the conversations. And again, if they don't, they really never nailed shamatha, nail it down. And then powerful experiments, like can you get into the the seventh uh, vipassana jhana, nothingness, and just see nothingness arise and vanish. That can, that can kind of blow apart notions of continuous consciousness and stuff in a way that other things may not. Some of this stuff has to be specific. And it's interesting to see what people will come up with. Because at this point, a lot of people will start sort of getting some sense of what their intuitive solutions need to be. Some, I just need to go do some Vajrayana. Cool. I just need to go do this. Now, I, I'm just going to go back to core Theravadan assumptions and just notice what's arising in the three characteristics. Okay, cool. And it's interesting to watch people like, usually by this point, they're pretty mature practitioners and they have some sense of what they need to do. You know, that's how they got to where even to be asking the question. So it's interesting to watch them really come into their own power and, and sort of claim that thing plus minus some tweaks and some external external you know, feedback, not that anything's actually external, but you know what I mean. So that's, again, a pretty short summary of what could be a very long conversation and often is a very long conversation. That's wonderful. And, you know, as, as, you're, as you're talking, a fifth and final question for our conversation comes, comes to my mind. Daniel, I have attained fourth path. Now what? Yeah, it's a great question. Assuming someone could actually convince me that they had attained to that, which is, again, an incredibly rare occurrence, though it occasionally does occur. Um, how are your other skills? So the path involves multiple aspects. How's morality, right? So conversations about morality, about addictions, about psychology. Uh, not that I have, you know, all my psychological stuff sorted out. I don't, but that's, the, you know, sort of the, the three great ways we reduce suffering, uh, sila, samadhi, and panya, or, you know, prajna, or pick your favorite words for these things. Uh, those are all important ways to reduce suffering. So I'm going to ask them about how they're doing and, and all the other aspects of their life, how their relationships, how their job's functioning, um, what's their scholarship like, how's their, how are their concentration skills, right? Because it's a broad path, and focusing just on the path of insight can be incredibly limiting. 
So, so we've got, you know, three broad trainings, eightfold noble path, and it's extremely important to remember the other two. And it's so easy to get fascinated and lost by just the insight path. And then a lot can get missed and there can be a lot of shadow sides and a lot left that, you know, we didn't develop as we were just gunning for three characteristics, understanding of sense doors or whatever. And that doesn't necessarily illuminate all other aspects of our life. And so the, the path is endless. You know, as Christopher Titmus routinely says, one path is enough for me. Um, and that one path is the, the path of awakening and then what we do with that awakening in the world. And so um, that's a whole nother series of conversations. Uh, and then, you know, what are they interested in? What do they want to do? How do they, if they actually have that, how do they want to bring that into the world? And, and you know, because a lot of people, we have our models, we have our role models, we have our, you know, oh, they do it this way and they talk this way and they wrote books and they do retreats and they do podcasts and they do private teachings and they just renounce the world and decide not to talk about any of this stuff. I have an Arhat friend who doesn't teach any of this ever pretty much and they're just like yeah no i'm, I'm out you know it's, it's, it's an interesting choice and to see how they relate to the various possible ways they can do this but they're going to bring their own dimension of uh and their own karma to their own dimensions of practice and and skills and background to this and you know create their own thing whatever that is and it'll have its own expression its own voice its own mix of techniques or not or its own you know they might teach or not and they might choose to manifest this all kinds of ways and that really is an interesting thing to see unfold and get to be a part of and you know be a sounding board for and be a friend to and help them and have a friend uh from them that you know that I can talk about these things with and refer to. That's really nice. You know, it's, again, I like distributed networks of wisdom rather than central hierarchies of, uh, you know, single teachers or whatever. And so it's nice to have the web of wisdom be a little wider and a little broader and a little stronger. And so that's also really good and exciting. And it is nice to have people that you can have conversations with that are hard to have uh, with people who might, you know, re react strangely or project or whatever in response to those conversations and people who can really model the sort of full breadth of humanity in their wisdom. That's always really nice. And so uh, that's some of the conversations that might occur in those kinds of settings. Fantastic. Well, Daniel, I'm an admirer of your work and approach and uh, somewhat impressed by your raw processing speed. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's tremendous. And I think that's that what we just did there in that rapid fire practice guide, I think is so useful. That's going to be so useful for, for, for certain people at different points. So thank you very much for, for doing that. Can I ask a question actually of you? Uh, yes. Why, why, are, why are those questions interesting to you? So what's, where does the rubber meet the road for you? And I, I, I don't know if people in your podcast tend to turn this around or how comfortable you are with that, but it would be interesting to kind of hear like th these are... Some of those are not typical questions for someone to be asking, although I've been asked some of them, but there's a level of detail there that, that just makes me wonder what's going on on the other side. Which, which questions in particular stood out in that way? Like most people are not asking how to get the higher paths in a podcast. It, it focuses a little lower. And so that's interesting. And I'm just wondering where some of that's uh, coming from. Well, my objective really with these questions is to, uh, it's, it's, it's dub double level in a certain sense, is to expose people to uh, your work and the way you approach things. Uh, because, you know, I, I teach meditation also, and there are people there that 
uh, you know, some people that are very interested in, in this sort of thing. And I want to produce, in a certain sense, a resource for them, and, and them being anybody who might listen to the podcast who resonates with your style of practice. And that's why I wanted to start biographically, so they can get a sense of who you are, and then get into some of the details, so they can really get a taste of, of what it is you're doing. You know, and for myself, um, I've had certain... Uh, let's say experiences, and that I'm a keen, a very keen meditator. Has all sorts of weird and wonderful experiences, and giving the thing that you yourself might benefit from, if you see my point, uh, is is a, is a good strategy. Does that answer it somewhat? Yeah, it's a start. It's still kind of a. You're welcome to press me, but uh, that's that's a level of abstraction. Yeah. So so like, you can't help but have thought about the maps. I mean, the problem is you can't unsee the maps. That's, it's, a, it's an issue. Once you've seen them, you can't unsee them. And so it would be interesting to, to notice or to think about how you yourself have dealt with exposure to the maps, which then you can't unsee and you can't not think about and you can't um, not wonder or speculate about how they might relate to your practice and other people's practices. Um, and so I was wondering how you have related to that whole process and what you've found helpful um, in dealing with exposure to the maps. What have you found skillful? What have you found has worked well for you that kept those from being a problem and instead helped them be something useful? On a high-level view, the sense that, uh, the sense that progress along the path can feel like going backwards in the path Yes. Or that sometimes when things feel like they're getting worse, they're actually, uh, so to say, getting better or moving towards a better place. The, I think that without necessarily needing to know or memorize or remember any of the details of all the different stages and so on, I think that insight is tremendously encouraging. Very true. Very normalizing. Yeah. Uh, also, I think sometimes that insight is difficult to, uh, or that uh, perspective is difficult to retain when one's going through those dukkha nanas. Uh, there's an awful lot of fear. There's an awful lot of misery. There's an awful lot of disgust. And though, so then, then it's not always so easy to say, to remember that high level view. So actually being able to name some of those stages, that can be very useful. You say, ah, yes, fear. Fantastic. Here's a tremendous opportunity. Let's, uh, plunge towards it, that sort of thing. And to see those um, states as tremendous opportunity. Nice. Yes, I'd say really those are the most um, practical of the takeaways I've had from being exposed to this sort of map theory. Good. Yeah. And how do you find the people you're teaching react to these theories and your, um, the things that you bring to help keep map theory from becoming problematic, which it can become. It can become about competition and judgment and comparison and striving and take one away from one's present experience. Uh, how have you found that the people you're teaching have reacted to your attempting to keep the maps uh, being something skillful? Meditation teachings are part of what I do. So of those that might be introduced to meditation with me or that might meditate with me, um, only a small percentage of them are going to uh, go that route and of those that would go that route well as, as Shenzhen Yang says so well I think uh, he, he talks about a journey of zero distance that when you arrive you end up where you always were and if you talk about 
if you talk about a journey, you set up, as you say, a map, say, you set up all sorts of potential problems, you know, competition, uh, doubt, where am I, who, you know, how do I get to the next thing, and so on and so forth. But if you don't, then you run the risk of, of not uh, disclosing that there is a journey to make of zero distance, um, and people may, may not really understand what's possible. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And so long as so long as there's a sense of um, of disclosure about that, and pragmatic disclosure, and as you say, outsourcing people, introducing people to other resources such as yourself. And this is one of the big reasons this podcast exists, is to try to introduce as many people as as, as are listening to a variety of of approaches. So there's I think there's a safety in that as well, and there's a well safety is perhaps not the right word. There's a safeguard. Um, element that's built into that uh, so that's what come that's what comes to mind nice thank you for that okay so daniel thank you very much for joining us it's been such a fascinating conversation and i think really anyone who's who's been inspired by or, or gripped by what we've been talking about should uh, should find you on the dharma overground your forum uh, get a copy of mastering the core teachings of the buddha second edition uh, where else, if people wanted to contact you uh, and get in touch or, or follow your activities, whereabouts could they do that? So they could do that at integrateddaniel.info, spelled just like you'd figure. And uh, there's a page that gives all the contact information and contact advice. Just realize that sometimes I have a lot of time and sometimes I really don't. If you email me or you know, reach out to me and it takes me days or weeks or occasionally even months to get back to you, please don't take it personally. Sometimes that just happens. I, yesterday morning, I was 250 unread emails deep and I was actually answering emails from November. And so now I'm kind of caught up for the moment, but that will last a day. And so, uh, and I sometimes go on retreats or travel or do whatever. And, um, Sometimes I just may not be digitally connected. Like the first two weeks of April, I'll be on retreat. I won't be um, digitally connected. And so if I don't get back to you, please don't take it personally. And if it's been like a month or so, please feel free to reach out again and just say, hey, remember that email I sent you? And, and I'll try as soon as I can to get back to you. Um, I don't charge anything for what I do, but my time is somewhat limited. And so uh, so the other thing is, if, if you're reaching out, whatever you say, keep it really practical. Like. Uh, the, you know, try to figure out, uh, this is what I want to do, and this is what information I need to do it. And it definitely helps if you've read the book first. And I realize it's long. I'm working on a summary version. I get 320,000 words is, is challenging. I, I understand. Uh, that said, it does help tremendously to get us on similar pages if you're familiar with that material, and you can do some of that pre-work while you're waiting for me to get back to you. Um, so that would be my best advice. You can also find some other stuff that's related to this, but kind of different at firekasina, F-I-R-E-K-A-S-I-N-A dot O-R-G, which is a totally different practice. And there's a free book there with my friend Shannon Stein that you can also uh, download or get from Lulu if you want to have a print version. Well, Daniel, thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much. It's been great. Bye. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.